When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Flushing is Burning. I'm Grace Carbone, and as always, I'm here with Christian Romo. Christian, how you doing? Uh, better than the Mets currently, but I'm doing okay. <laughs> yeah, it was. we had that little nice week, what was it, last week, and then, uh, or two weeks ago, and now now we're back to the same, it's not as bad as it was, but it's not as good as it was either. No, it, it's another example of the Mets playing down to their competition, I think, and it, you can never take games at Coors Field at face value because that's a very silly ballpark that does very silly things to good teams. Uh, but it, it's hard to even classify the Mets as a good team right now. But <laughs> also, like, then again, who is a good team in the National League right now? Yeah, there's like three. It's like the the Dodgers, the Braves, and then like grab bag, you know. Um, I will say one of the best things over the last couple weeks is uh, Francisco Alvarez is so good. He's very, very good. And it's it's as if he heard all of the rumors of him being sent down and said, I'm not going to AAA. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that I am a major leaguer going forward. And he's done everything to justify his position as the starting catcher on not just this team, but I think any major league team would be happy to have Alvarez as their starting catcher. He's been that good in that small sample size. I, 
if you're a Mets fan who's been watching this team over the past couple of weeks, it's basically been him and Pete Alonso. Those are the bright spots. <laughs> and it, it's, it's so, so fun to see not just, you know, a, another homegrown hitter that is doing what he's doing, but a starting catcher who is competent. That when was the last time we saw that Darno in in small spurts? Yeah, I mean, we don't know. Obviously, it's been two months of Alvarez playing like this, but it's one of those things where the defense came out blazing, which is really impressive given everything we had heard about him in the minors. And then he had a rough two weeks to start. And then he's just been tearing the cover off the ball to the point that like anytime there's a sort of like big situation in the game and he's up, I have complete faith in him. And he's been up for a month and a half. And I'm immediately like, yeah, get him to the plate and you'll you'll be set. I mean, it's just three run home run after three run home run after three run home run to a frightening yet amazing degree. Yeah, it's I remember a couple of days ago when people were fretting that he was hitting ninth. And then the very next day, people were fretting that he was hitting second. In both positions, he hits three run home runs to give the Mets six runs in the middle of a game. Like, it doesn't seem to matter. And 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 I think that's what is encouraging me the most about him. At the end of the season when he was brought up as a September call-up, and at the beginning of this season... It felt as if the lights were a little too bright. He was swinging out of his shoes. He was swinging at bad pitches. He was making rookie decisions, something that you would expect of a rookie. And I thought to myself, this is probably going to take a year. It took like three weeks. All of that is gone. Like he's, he's making much better decisions at the plate. He's swinging for the fences every time, but he also doesn't have a problem with hitting to the opposite field. Like he has such a complete understanding of what it takes to be a modern major league hitter. And in a lineup filled with all-star caliber hitters, MVP level hitters, there's a really good chance that he's going to finish the season as the best hitter on this team. And I'm, I am shocked that that's a possibility at this point. I mean, we started the season with, oh, the Mets' best chance for Rookie of the Year is Kodai Senga. Then three weeks into the season, it was the Mets' best chance at Rookie of the Year is probably Brett Beatty. Right now, if you look, the, the amount of offensive and defensive ability that he's shown and the output he's had, he is firmly in that race right now. He is number three or four, but also that's taking into the account the fact that James Altman had a great first month, but has kind of cooled down. So there's there's a lot of moving pieces here. He's not far off of Corbin Carroll's tail, and he had one less week in the majors and really two less weeks of production because he started the season cold, but he's been so good that if he keeps up, even not at quite this pace, because I think I saw something from like April 21st of the last month or so, he's been hitting 300. You can't expect him to keep up that pace no. just the way that baseball is right now. But even a slightly lower offensive production mixed with catcher defense, which is impeccable from him really at this point. To the, you know, three weeks ago he wasn't he was catching you know two or three starters. Now it seems he can catch anyone. He can catch Kodai Senga, and it's not a problem. If yeah. he keeps that up, he's going to be firmly in that race. And honestly, I think it'll be close. He already is. Uh, I, I I have the the Fangraphs leaderboard up right now. 
it's it's those three you mentioned. It's Corbin Carroll, it's Alvarez, it's Outman that are all basically tied at the top. Corbin Carroll has 1.6 uh, F4, Alvarez at 1.4, Outman at 1.3. It's basically uh, basically a three-way tie right now in, in admittedly a small sample size. But here's the difference. Alvarez is known as a power hitter, and he's provided more value on the defensive end. And I, I know that we keep on saying this and saying this, but it's it, we're seeing the offensive breakout. But it's not coming at the expense of defense, which was what a lot of Mets fans and Mets scouts and Mets experts were worried about. That hasn't happened yet. He, he's not just an exemplary rookie. I, I believe he's also the third or fourth highest valued catcher in the National League right now. Uh, Sean Murphy is way ahead of everyone right now. But I think I remember Alvarez has something like twice the F war of JT Real Muto. Like, who could have possibly predicted that? It, it's just, it's really, it, it makes me really happy to see. Because one of my favorite things about watching Alvarez recently, um, there's such a, and you can say this about a lot of Mets, but especially he's so young and everything like that. There's such a almost innocent joy to the way that he plays the game in sort of, Every time anyone gets, they could be down 20 runs and someone scores a run and he or hits a home run. He just looks so thrilled to just be playing baseball. And I find that intoxicating from any player. That's why I love Pete Alonso. That's why I love Francisco Lindor and Brandon Nimmo. They all play with sort of that intoxicating joy for the game that, that you know, is built into a game for kids, which is what baseball ultimately is. And the fact that He's he has that level of, of joy about it, and then also is just so good that it's fun to watch him. It's the perfect combo. It's it's not just the joy; it's it's the killer instinct. Yeah, he he seems to really relish the high intensity, high stress moments. He doesn't hesitate throwing snapbacks to first. He he doesn't hesitate on the 2-2 pitch with two outs in high leverage situations. Like he seems to be already built for this moment. And that that's a that's impossible to teach. Like that's the one thing you can't teach for any minor leaguer coming into the major leagues because the lights are bright. The audience is so much bigger. It you could understand anyone crumbling under the pressure, especially with someone with as high expectations as Alvarez, but he's he's the the joy that he is exuding is is lifting this offense to a place where even when a Starling Marte or a Marcana or an Escobar is is not pulling their weights, it's fine because the ninth place hitter has eight home runs in thirty three games. Like that's really really impressive. Yeah, it's it's just so much fun. I could talk about Alvarez all day. But no, let's do it. Let's do it. There's <laughs> there's more Alvarez stuff. Like I th there's uh remember earlier when when there were a lot of conspiracy theories about like why Alvarez like wasn't being called up and the this idea that maybe the Mets didn't want to call him up early so that he could stink it up and therefore it would it would tank a potential like trade scenario. The trade scenarios are tanked right now, but for a different reason. You can't trade him. He's he, he's the future of the organization, and it's it's interesting because like that 
that is sort of a problem in the short term that like it's it's now very likely that they will not be able to land as high uh someone with the capabilities of a Shohei Otani because Alvarez is playing so well but six years of potentially the best catcher in baseball on my team yeah I'll, I'll take that any day no problem you know, Mets are in a division with the Braves. I think that they should take a page out of the Braves' book and just this. I mean, obviously, they should extend Alonzo this offseason. That should be yeah. priority number one. Coming in right around two or three, depending on, you know, how, how much faith you have in them being able to sign Shohei Otani in the offseason, they should probably be looking into trying to extend Alvarez because the more he plays like this, the higher that number is going to be in terms of, you know, obviously he should be paid to fair market value for his abilities. But let's say worst case scenario, the offense does fade away or, or is more of a spurt, you know, hot and cold start catcher like we've seen in recent years. You're still going to be getting one of what appears to be the best defensive catchers in the league. They really, they really should look into making sure he is here for a very, very long time. Uh, yeah, I, I'm also not one to advocate for the undervaluing of players. Uh, but I think you're right. I think the Mets would be smart to look into a Michael Harris type contract mm. for Alvarez. Hopefully not an Ozzy Albies type mm. contract. Uh, it's life-changing money regardless. But uh, yeah, like this, this guy is everything advertised. And I don't think I'm going to regret saying that. Okay, we don't have to talk about <laughs> Alvarez forever if you want to move on to something else. I just wanted to get that last thing out there. Yeah. Um, I mean... You said it before, there's really only one other member of the Mets offense that's anything to write home about right now, and that is uh, currently on pace for 60-plus home runs, Pete Alonso. Uh, yeah, Pete Alonso is having a very weird season, right? <laughs> like, if if you had told me that a third of the way through the season, Alonso would have 20 home runs, I would say that he is the leading MVP candidate. He's not even like the leading MVP candidate on the Mets right now. <laughs> and it's kind of because he's only really hitting home runs. Like that's, that's it. He had a triple against the Rockies. I was promptly erased because of, um, I wouldn't call it a bad base running decision. I would call it uh, impressive defense. Um, but that was his first triple of the season. You know, pretty obviously, but it was also only his fourth extra base hit that didn't leave the yard. He's hit 20 home runs and only three doubles on the year. I'm fairly certain he has more home runs than singles as well. And yet this is, this is something that like every baseball fan needs to pay attention to because the, the rate at which he's hitting home runs, it just looks so easy for him right now. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where, like, oh, he connects. I'm expecting it to leave the yard, really. Like you said, three doubles, a triple. I do think that if he's – I mean, this is just Pete Alonso as, as a slider. Um, if he had slid a little bit differently, because he, he went in kind of elbow first, I feel like if he extended his hand more on that slide, he probably would have been safe because he would have gotten to, to home before the uh, the catcher tagged him. Um, but, yeah, it's it's – a very weird season is a good way to describe basically every player on the Mets this year. Very you know, good. like like Lindor, I think, has way more extra base hits than he has singles as well. Um, mm -hmm. But he's not having a very good year. But anytime he connects, it seems to be two bases at least. Um, 
you know, Beatty hot and cold, but I'm still, you know, I'm not going to just say, oh, well, he's bad now because we've seen what he can do and he's just going to have to adjust. Nimmo's having a weird up and down season. Starling Marte's having a weird up and down. Everyone's having either a weird up and down season or some sort of weird offensive thing. Like, like, but Pete Alonso getting to 20 home runs right now, it would be very funny if like the year after Aaron Judge hit 62, Alonso just hit 63. I think that would be hilarious in its own way. Also, you know, this when you're when you're talking about projecting into the 60s, there's like a non-zero chance that he goes on like a real tear at some point and gets back to that pace that he had where he was on on pace for like 74 home runs, mm-hmm. which would be bananas. So it's weird. It, it's weird. That's the only way to describe it. He's not anywhere near the MVP race, but he's just hitting home runs. And I, I think an undercovered aspect of the Pete Alonso phenomenon is that he plays half his games at City Field. And that's not something that Aaron Judge had to contend with last year. Aaron Judge hits in a band box. Pete Alonso hits in an airport hangar. Like, it, it's remarkable. And I, this was highlighted um, in the series at Coors. Pete Alonso has hit far more home runs on the road than he has at home, which is a shame. Like that's something that shouldn't necessarily be the case for anyone. But to me, it demonstrates that he just likes putting on a show. He just likes being that big, strong guy in the middle that hits a lot of home runs, which by the way, is the most valuable thing like you can possibly do in a lineup. It just, it it comes at such a weird, um, weird clip in his season because he's he's third on the team in war, despite his 60 home run pace. And it's because Brandon Nimmo is having a really good season and Alvarez is having a really good season. Like these are, these are things that um, come when you have, when you have a lot of talent on, on the team, but what Alonzo is doing that I think presents a lot of value to the Mets beyond the on-field stuff is that if this season somehow goes to shit, which there is a non-zero chance that that will happen. He is single-handedly giving Mets fans a reason to stick with this team. Very similar to the way that R.A. Dickey did in his Cy Young season, or Matt Harvey did in his 2013 season. Like Having that one person making a chase towards not just immortality, but, but something that will land him in the Mets hall of fame or, or whatever, like that's, that's a really good thing to have because again, there is a non-zero chance that after June, the Mets are going to be five, six games under 500 completely out of the race. And what are you going to do throughout the summer? Well, you're going to watch Pete, Pete Alonso try to hit 60 home runs. That's what we're going to do. It's just, it's for, for, for some reason, I'm, I'm thinking back to like the 2018-2019 teams because you had a lot of the similar scenarios there where you had one player, Jacob deGrom, chasing towards immortality, his, mm-hmm. his first and second Cy Young Awards, and everything that he was doing in those seasons, which is still unbelievable that we got to witness that. And then you also had sort of these young, exciting players show up, your Jeff McNeils, your Pete Alonzos, and they... Even even during the bad times, that entire 2018 season, which was essentially lost other than the, the Jacob deGrom goodness and McNeil showing up, or 2019, which was very up and down. 
I could see the season playing out kind of like that, where they just seem really bad and then for one month go on a tear and you're like, oh, they in it. Um, it's 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 odd that one year after what their second best season in team history, they're now like this. Bleh. Yeah. For lack of a better word, like it's not like they're bad. They're not like outright like, oh my god, they're terrible. They largely have mostly the same people, except you know more more difference in their pitching staff, which I'm sure we'll get into in a moment. They're just, bleh. and yeah. Pete Alonso is sort of keeping them from being largely unwatchable in the bad games. The difference is expectations, right? The, that 2018, 2019, those teams were fun because there wasn't any sort of expectation that they would win a pennant. There, there was no, um, there was no hope, and so all of the positives that came from that team just shined so brightly as a result. But the expectations are really weighing down the enjoyment factor of this team, and it might get a lot worse because this June schedule doesn't look terribly inviting for a scuffling Mets team. And this pitching staff is really, really in rough shape. Yeah, it's the the pitching is upsetting to 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 use a word or or disheartening. There's good pitchers here who like Verlander, he just won the Cy Young. And some of these games he comes out and you're like, yes, like this guy is just gonna take take control. And then you have games. Now listen again, course field. He's playing in course. He's pitching in course field. You would hope that he would have realized at a certain point, like, oh, maybe I should stop throwing my my curveball. Um, I I feel like every pitcher I've ever seen be good elsewhere and then bad in course field probably should stop throwing their curveball there. Like that mm-hmm. seems like a like a big sticking point for most of them. Um, the the bullpen is just bizarre. Yeah. You know, you've got you've got Robertson pretty much locked down. We're good to go. Adovino, a little bit less stable, but still most of the time you can count on him. Um, and then like pick your poison, really past that. Like again, Brooks Raley's not doing anything. Every time I see him, he's not doing anything to make me feel like, oh, maybe I should root for this guy. He's just He's he's lately not been able to find the plate with a map. Um, Brigham has some good games, some bad. And I feel like that's the truth of this entire bullpen. Some good games, some bad games. And I think this season, their struggles, you can really pinpoint on, on the issues with the pitching. And like you said, this May schedule is not going to be fun if you have bad pitching because you're facing in May a lot of teams that are going to be able to expose that, even if they're not good this year they're they have the hitters to be able to expose weak pitching these are the teams that they're up against throughout the next month uh by the time this recording comes out they will be deep into their first series with the phillies it's been like three months and they haven't played the phillies yet that's weird um after that it's toronto atlanta pittsburgh the yankees the cardinals the Astros, Phillies again, and then the Brewers. The good news about that is that the Mets have actually played decently well this season against good teams, and that's going to have to continue because 
save for maybe the Cardinals, those are all good teams. And if, if the Mets play up to their competition like they did against the Rays, against the Braves, against the Dodgers, then yeah, maybe, maybe June is is the season is the oh sorry the month where everything gets turned around. But maybe that was luck. Maybe this team will regress to the mean, and June is the time when that happens because. Yeah, if th- this this isn't the month for for the Mets to finish anything under 500 and there's there's a pretty decent chance it's going to happen. And this doesn't have to do with anything, but how weird is it that we're like, "Oh man, this June schedule is tough." I mean, they're facing the Cardinals, so that should give them some wins, but those Pirates sure are going to take it to them. I'm scared of the Pirates. <laughs> I'm scared of every National League team. Like the the, the here's the, I, the the Rockies, the Nationals, they're the worst teams in the National League, and I think they're only three games out of a playoff spot right now. We, we just saw the Rockies beat the Mets two out of three in a series where the Mets scored 22 runs. Like, it, if, if you score 22 runs on the road and can't win the series, something's amiss. <laughs> I mean, that something is the pitching staff. You can't score. You can't say, well, I scored 10 runs in this game. But I should have scored 12 because our pitching staff gave up 11. Like, that's unsustainable. I think the only, the only bright spot here would be to sort of say, okay, well, maybe. They've got they've – got, I'm looking at the schedule right now. They've got a decent split between home and road, and they're not playing anywhere like Coors Field on this road trip. Um, they are playing in Philadelphia, but also they're, they're playing in Philadelphia. Um, hopefully, they'll be able to – like you said before, play up to their competition like they did against the Rays and uh, the Guardians, who aren't terrible. Um, they have some. They have a lot of good pitching, really. Um, hopefully, they can play up to the level of their competition because if they don't, yeah, this is this could be a, a much different look for the Mets by the end of the month. Come come the game on the thirtieth against the Giants, they could be really looking upwards at the rest of the division and waving goodbye as they plummet. Well, we will know by the 12th episode of this <laughs> show. Uh, but as of right now, the eighth episode is way over. That's my fault. I'm sorry. I just wanted to talk about Alvarez a lot. Listen, uh, don't we all? <laughs> yes. Uh, so we're going to take a break and come back with some lighter fare. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Grace. Are you surprised as I am that the Dodgers Pride Night fiasco has continued into its second week? Um, am I surprised? No, no. I mean, 
because I always expect that as bad and as wild as a story can get, it can always get worse and wilder. Here's why I'm surprised. <laughs> I thought it was resolved. I thought we had wrapped it up. I thought that everything was copacetic. It was under control. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence were reinvited. They reaccepted their invitation and it was all good. And then two days later, Clayton Kershaw tweets something out <laughs> saying that the Dodgers are excited to reintroduce Faith Night at the stadium. I, I might be paraphrasing. I don't exactly know what it's called, but the idea is that the Dodgers are going to host a Christian event, or maybe it's a pan-religious event, but I have my doubts about that. Yeah, you really uh, think that's going to be including all religions? Yeah, probably not, especially <laughs> especially considering like the 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 makeup of Los Angeles. It's it's a very Catholic city above all else, uh, very Jewish as well. But um, it it would surprise me if, if it were like pan religious. And immediately people started sniffing around because this was not on the schedule before the season started, and the timing of this announcement coincided with the fallout of their Pride Night fiasco, and it started to get people wondering if this was a compromise that the Dodgers had negotiated with, likely the Catholic League, probably not Marco Rubio, in order for them to save face by reinviting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and I find it funny Above all else, I, I find it interesting that like they needed to put Clayton Kershaw out there as the face of this reconciliation. W what were your thoughts about this new development? It's so funny. Like, it's just, you're, you're pandering to a group that will not be happy unless you bend to their absolute will. So you're going to sit there and go, well, we're doing this one thing, so isn't it okay that we do the thing we were originally going to do? No, they're not going to like that. That's just not going to be you're, – you're attempting to please people who will not be pleased unless they are absolutely winning. Like they are, they are what they consider to be absolutely winning. And to have Clayton Kershaw do this kind of – because like – who else are you really going to put out there? For, like, Clinton Kershaw is kind of the unassailable Dodger. He's going to be a Hall of Famer, this and that. Like, who else are you throwing out there for this? Blake Trinan? Like, you don't want him <laughs> going out there with that. Yeah, um, I, I I don't know. And part of that is because the Dodgers just got rid of all their veterans this past offseason. <laughs> so, like, that seems pretty unrecognizable uh, from, from a player standpoint. But uh, I think another reason why I find it interesting is because this is being presented as like the counterbalance to the moves that they made for Pride Night. And it I, I want to really emphasize the idea that a Faith Night does not equal a Pride Night in terms of cultural capital, because one features a celebration for marginalized people and the other does not. And I, I don't want to de-emphasize the value of a faith night. I, I think that for a lot of people, that's a perfectly healthy and reasonable event to attend. And I don't necessarily have a problem with the Dodgers doing that. I just don't necessarily want people to equate the two. And I also don't want people to, to perceive of a faith night as something that is diametrically opposed to a pride night. In the last 50 years or so, Christianity and queerness have been at opposing ends for a lot of reasons, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And that's why I'm I'm a little like 
disappointed by this this development the idea that in order to to appease these far-right idiots something like a faith night needed to be presented as a counterbalance when in reality it should have nothing to do with pride like queerness and christianity are not intrinsically at odds these are separate things they don't they don't need to be treated as like two ends of a seesaw that that finally reaches equilibrium i and i, I also realize that that's like a pretty small consideration in the grand scheme of things i just find it weird that the dodgers were like oh we screwed up with our our queer things so what do we need to turn to we need to turn to jesus because that's <laughs> that's what what is, is being expected of us and i i don't think that's a very solid message to to point out but i mean like i also don't suspect they had much of a choice in the matter yeah, it's not it's not diametrically opposed. I mean, there's plenty of queer Christians. So I don't I don't think that if you break it down to the basest core of what the religion believes, I don't think that there's you know anything saying that the two can't be, you know, live in in harmony and both be accepted and and whatever. Um, it definitely is just the the timing of this is where the real. If, again, if they had announced it before the season, if they had announced it a month ago three weeks ago before any of this happened it would have been fine nobody would have batted an eye okay whatever you want to have irish heritage night you want to have you know there's the ballparks do nights for everything every single thing under the sun you can imagine because they're trying to get people to come and be like oh and then you know so don't have a problem with it totally cool idea it's just the the way in which it was announced and the suspicious timing of it all Again, it, it does all. It leads us to believe that this is a capitulation and a compromise instead of just being a night to for people to celebrate their faith. And honestly, I I don't think that's fair to the Pride Night to to sort of put them on the the same level and to be like, okay, well they're the same thing. And I don't think it's fair to to Christians who maybe wanted to have this night who basically had to wait for the Dodgers to fuck up spectacularly to get it. Right. And uh, it, if I were a religious person myself, I think I would look at this and be like, why exactly do I need to go to a ball game to celebrate my faith <laughs> when there are ample spaces around the city to express my religion? But, you know, it's whatever. One thing that I think the Dodgers are very happy about is that they are no longer the target of <laughs> right-wing ire. Uh, the the internet rights have found their new target. It's it's Target. That's that's their new target. Uh, what's a what's going on with Target, Grace? Oh boy. So you know, if you've kept an eye on this the last couple of years, Target's been sort of expanding year by year their pride apparel and merchandise collection that they put out there each year, and for the most part, it's fine. Some of it's all right. I like some of the designs. There's a few things that have been like, oh, maybe I'd buy that. There's other things that are like, there's no way in hell I'm ever wearing that. That is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, but just overall, it's just supposed to be like, oh, okay, you know, like we've got this stuff. But as certain reactionaries online, certain, certain very conservative people who view everything as a fight um, are wont to do, 
they took this as a new part of their culture war, um, following in the footsteps of the the Pride Night, the the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and the the Bud Light can controversies. You know these great cultural touchstones that we all know and all felt so strongly about, and they've decided now to threaten Target uh, with boycotts and with, in some cases, um, violence over shirts that say things like live, laugh, lesbian, and children's overalls that say be kind, as you are wont to do. I have a couple of thoughts about this whole Target thing. One, it is not surprising in the slightest that people have uncovered that many of the people that are in loudest opposition to Target and are causing fusses and uploading videos of them harassing people <laughs> in Target are deeply closeted. And I'm not one for publicly outing people, but if you're going to attack the community like that, your grinder profile is now <laughs> business. Like we we need to expose the the hypocrisy of this. And there's also a tragedy in that as well, because it's people who um because closeting is not a a personal choice. Closeting is an environmental uh, catastrophe. It's, it's it's something that is imposed upon oneself, and and to see all these people behave in such a way where they can't live their truth, like it really is tragic. But it they're the harm that they're doing is outweighing the personal tragedy, and so like it, it is completely unsurprising that like the leaders of this video reaction are 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 for the most part queer themselves. The second second thing I would like to bring up is that like I have no love for Target as a corporation. I I view them in the same light as a Walmart. I think they are a parasite in communities. Uh Target just happens to be that parasite in mostly urban and coastal areas. But this is very similar to the Disney DeSantis rivalry where I'm like, <laughs> "Oh man, I got to I got to root for the corporation now." I have to I have to side with big business. I don't want to do that. It's it's so stupid. I find myself saying that a lot during the segment about whatever stupid thing we cover. It's just so stupid. People get worked up after over everything and then you get like the the people who are just spreading lies about it that then become reproduced and and twisted in this bizarre game of angry telephone and then it turns into this other thing that people are like well obviously i wouldn't support that but that's not what targets target is going you really think that target is going to make some grand stand about anything target doesn't care target wants to make money the reason why target's putting this stuff out is because they see a new avenue of revenue yep. And they're not going to rock the boat that much. And now basically, like the as we saw with companies like Bud Light, they're kind of walking it back a little bit in that they're taking some of this, you know, in, in areas where you would see more of these threats. They're taking this stuff off shelves. They're making it, you know, impossible to get it in stores because in a way, and I totally get this, like it sucks to see them have to do that, but there are people's lives at stake here in terms of the employees there because these these lunatics are going into the stores with the cameras because the, the people who are going in there filming themselves 
ripping down displays and stepping on them can only be described as being crazy, like, like crazed, really. Because there's no reason why, a, like, a regular person who would just walk into a store and see that, even if they didn't agree with it, would go, you know what I have to do? I have to film myself ripping this display down so that way people know just how against this I am. Now Target has to capitulate to them because now they're going to go and they're going to start threatening to blow up the joint. All over, again, like $25, $20 shirts that are going to fall apart after you wash them three times. Hey, that's, that's, uh, I buy clothes <laughs> from Target sometimes. Like, I do too. They're not some of their bad. stuff is fine. They're and then some bad. of their stuff falls apart after three. It's like H&M. No love for Target, but <laughs> Mofino jeans have lasted me a long time. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's all really stupid, as as you said. And um, I, I guess the Dodgers should be very thankful to Target for taking the heat off of them. And I guess in a couple of episodes, we'll see what the new <laughs> panic uh, we have to react to is. We're uh, we're coming up on Pride Month, which means we're gonna get new things every week. Oh, we're oh. like Ford is gonna do something, and then the, they're gonna be like blowing up their own cars or something. It's gonna be wild. Oh, can't wait for that. <laughs> Uh, one thing that we should mention before uh, we move on, we would like to give a hearty rest in peace to former major leaguer Glenn Burke, who died 28 years ago this week. Um, it, it needs be mentioned that Glenn Burke was is considered to be the first um, openly gay player in Major League Baseball, was blacklisted um, and was shuffled out of Major League Baseball uh, and died of AIDS-related complications uh, in the Bay Area shortly after. Um, his life is something that I would like to celebrate at a later date, but I think it's important right now to um, simply recognize him and say his name and wish his family best wishes. Yeah, it's he's a deeply fascinating person. Like you'd say, I'd rather celebrate his life than, than to do it in this form of, of talking about his death. But He's fascinating and important to both the game of baseball and just sports history. Um, and it's it's one of those stories that's interesting and, and devastating at the same time. Um, but yeah, just to, to throw a quick remembrance his way because I don't think we, I don't think he sort of gets cast aside a little bit in baseball history and I, I don't I think that we should be starting to pull him back in. Dodgers, Pride Night, more Glenn Burke celebrations. That's all, that's all I'm really asking for. Uh, rest in peace, Glenn Burke. We'll be right back. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Christian, I don't know if you saw, um, we got the first renderings of the new Las Vegas Las Vegas A's is stadium. Um, 
it certainly does look like renderings. Why was the reaction positive to this? Why 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 does why is foul territory as big as it is in Oakland? Why why is the roof just not permanently affixed into that desert hellhole? Like what's it's a rendering, so this won't be the final outcome, but what? Like it's supposed to be the ideal version. This this doesn't look like something that you should be playing baseball in. Why does it have a big ring? Like why is this Saturn ass looking stadium? Why did why is it like that? There's just a big I I can't understand what the is the ring the thing that moves the the roof back and forth or is it just a weird architectural decision? Where are people going to park? Like, I didn't see a single parking lot or a parking. And granted, like, you're not going to include, you know, a massive parking structure in your space age rendering. But there is no public transit in Las Vegas that can take 30,000 people to a stadium in the middle of the strip. That doesn't exist. You need parking. And you probably need covered parking because it's going to be 115 degrees. And you can air condition the stadium but you can't air condition an open parking lot. That's not that's not doable. Eight games a year for the Raiders? Yeah, people are going to be okay with that. They're not going to be okay with 81 games a year for the A's. They're going to park in foul territory. That's, that's why a, it's so big. A decent idea. <laughs> and so I, I will say this. Every time I see Las Vegas A's, it really confuses my brain because it takes me a second not to say Las Vegas Aces. Mm. Um which will probably be the better team once the A's move there. They'll consistently be the better team as well. Um, but it's just everything about this is weird. They had to move spots, and this is a rendering. But also, do we think this is going to happen? It's just there's a lot of questions around this. So specifically with the do we think this is going to happen question, the there are movers and shakers that are sneakily trying to find ways to make it happen, despite a whole lot of good reporting from uh, the Las Vegas Review Journal that shows that there are some very powerful people in Las Vegas that do not want this to happen. The The motion to um, include taxpayer-funded money uh, to be given towards the A's. Actually, I, I believe the, the way it's included, it's for any baseball team, but like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, it's, it's for <laughs> the A's, was introduced this past weekend, and the public is only able to comment on it today. And as a reminder, we are recording this on Memorial Day, where people are probably doing other things than attending city council meetings and putting their word for public funds of large stadiums. So it it's 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 very strange. Like I I can't help but to think that John Fisher's strategy of stripping a team down to its bare bones. And by the way, as of the time of recording, the A's are 10 and 45. I think they're on <laughs> nine wins was successful in disincentivizing the city of Oakland from wanting to do anything about the A's because this team is bad and it's easier to feel uh, demotivated to funding a bad team. But it seems to be also hurting their Las Vegas plans as well, because I'm sure there are a lot of movers and shakers and residents of Las Vegas that are looking at this team that's playing 200 baseball and thinking that's, that's going to be ours. Does, <laughs> does it have to be? 
you know, maybe Mark Davis can like, you know, get his revenge on what sounds like John Fisher screwing him over when with with the Raiders trying to stay in Oakland and keep Fisher out of keep John Fisher out of uh Vegas. I think that'd be that a per a man with a haircut like Mark Davis has to be able to do some crazy shit. Are you asking me to root for the NFL now? We just <laughs> we just went through this with Target and Disney. <laughs> Not don't the NFL. want the to do Las that. Las Vegas Aces owner Mark Davis, who oh, oh, as okay. we know, the Las Vegas Aces are only above board. You have no love for the Aces. What are you doing there? <laughs> I I like their players. I think that management there is crazy, but I'd also like to see some crazy shit here. I'm always rooting for the chaos choice. Yeah, uh, that that has become abundantly clear. Uh, Grace, do you have a movie for us this week? Yes, I do. I went this week. I took my dad. We went to see um, It Ain't Over, the documentary about Yogi Berra that they were actually talking about on SNY a few weeks ago during the game. Um, and I went into it expecting just like a nice little documentary about Yogi Berra, um, which is largely what I got. But it was very thorough for a movie that was about 90 minutes long very thorough very well done um it was just it was just if you you know you listen to this podcast you probably like baseball there's no one in baseball that has like become as ubiquitous ubiquitous in the way that Yogi Berra did where he's just like you love him even if you don't watch baseball or know really anything about baseball you know Yogi Berra you know the things that he said. You know, you know, just like this little guy, Yogi Bear. Like you know of him, even if you don't know him. And when you get to know him more through reading about him or watching a documentary like this, he he really was a fascinating person who I think is deeply underrated by baseball fans. He won three MVPs. He's won, I think it was 10 World Series rings with the Yankees um, or, or eight with the Yankees and then two. I know he won one with the Mets as a coach. Um, but just a deeply fascinating guy who he didn't go to Yankee Stadium for like 20 years because George Steinbrenner wronged him. The documentary really was like, fuck George Steinbrenner. And I was like, yeah, fuck George Steinbrenner. Um but just this really interesting, like, he was, uh, you know, he was Italian immigrant. He lived in St. Louis in this place called Dago Hill. He went to World War II and he fought uh, on D-Day on the beach. And they were like, oh, do you want to get your Purple Heart? But he was like, oh, man, if I do that, they're going to announce that. I don't want my mom to worry. Mm. Just like this really nice, sweet guy who, like, you know, they talk a lot about his... Um, acceptance of Jackie Robinson when he first came into the league and how mm. how that was important. And even in his later years, he joined this organization called Athlete Ally to sort of um, support LGBT rights. It, it, very, very fascinating man. And I think the documentary, it's not a perfect doc, it's 90 minutes long. It doesn't really get into anything super in depth, but it does a very good job showing this sort of larger than life personality and who he really was. Yogi Berra is such an interesting case study because divorced from his personality, he still has the Hall of Fame career. And there are a lot of people that will always point out that he played for, you know, you know one of the greatest 
like dynasties of all time, but he also was their catcher for close to 20 years and interrupted by his time in World War II. And as you mentioned, this wasn't like a Bob Feller type where you like join the army, but all you really do is, you know, play baseball games and do, you know, events to cheer up morale. No, he was in the Navy and they stormed Normandy and he fought in the South of France. Like he, he was a legitimate soldier sailor. I don't really know the parlance, but he, he, <laughs> he did it. Like he did all of that and had the hall of fame career on top of that. But beyond all of that, I, I think Yogi Berra's place in baseball history is solidified. When you ask the question, can you tell the story of baseball without Yogi Berra? You can't, it's not possible. He is arguably the key figure on the greatest dynasty in baseball history. That is something that needs to be taken into account when we talk about like the greatest figures is he the greatest catcher who ever played no but he's not chopped liver he's amongst the three or four greatest catchers who ever played and that's something that i don't think enough people realize when talking about him um i'm i'm glad that the documentary shined a light on a lot of his extracurricular stuff because we do a lot of that but for us, Yogi Berra is more of a cartoon character than a person. And I think that does a huge disservice to his contributions, both to baseball and outside of baseball, whether it be with um, the the ally organization, I had no idea that, that he joined that, or as a veteran, or as a, just a, a remarkable personality outside of baseball. Um, I'm glad that he's, he's getting his shine, and uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed that movie. Yeah, it was, it, it, Dickens is really funny. I, I cried watching it, which, like, A, I'm a soft touch, but also, like, you do, you get really sucked in, especially as a baseball fan, you get really sucked into him and his personality outside of, you know, the Yogi Berra personality that we know. Um, and he was just, like, a nice guy who just did his, he, he worked hard, he did his best. He, you know, Yes, he was on these great Yankee teams. He won, you know, he was in like nine World Series in 10 years and won eight of them. But at the same time, he's a big cog in those Yankee teams' years. And in terms of the Yankee dynasty that we think of, he is the connector from the Joe DiMaggio years to the Mickey Mantle years. He is those years. And he was such an important part of that team. And he was one of the best catchers to ever live. And it's, we sort of lose sight of that in everything else, but he is, he's such an impressive player. He didn't, he wasn't a good catcher when he started and he was turned, he made himself into a good catcher. He worked to be a good catcher and he became one of the best catchers to ever live, which I, I find really funny that that's like multiple of the great catchers that we think of him, Mike Piazza, you know, whoever else, that's kind of how their story started. Mike Piazza started as a bad first baseman who they turned into a catcher and he wasn't good, but he worked hard. Very interesting that there's multiple of those. Um, I I did find at the end, pretty funny after he had passed his, his uh, granddaughter was like, okay, well let's try and get him the purple heart. He never got. So she reaches out to like the United States Navy handling that portion of it. They said, Oh, well, you know, he needs witnesses to say he was there. So maybe go on social media and see if you can find anyone who was there with him. 
And she's like, he just died and he was 90 years old. Mm -hmm. Any of these people are on Instagram that I can just reach out (laughs) and be like, hey, do you remember when Yogi Berra fought on the beaches with you? Can you say he did that? Um, And like they started a petition to get him the Presidential Medal of, of Honor and everything like that. Just he was so undervalued because we just thought of him as the cartoon character. Which, by the way, the Yogi Bear thing actually kind of bothered him because it did sort of turn him into this cartoon character in the eyes of everyone very early. Um, but just he was someone who genuinely loved baseball, but also had a very strong sense of self. He wasn't going to do anything that he felt was beneath him. And I thought that that was very, for, for the character that we've built up in our minds, it was very interesting. I just looked this up. Uh, there's only 11 players in Major League history who have won three or more MVPs, and Yogi Berra is one of them. Uh, I think even even in an era where like people just voted for the best Yankee, um, it's <laughs> it's still remarkable that three times Yogi Berra was the best Yankee because, as you said, the bridge between DiMaggio and Mantle, that's never a guarantee. Yeah, it's, it's Met legend Yogi Berra lives on. Mets legend Yogi Berra. I oh, if if seventy three had happened, that that would have been that would have been tremendous. <laughs> Not that you know either of us were alive in nineteen seventy three, but you know, like yeah, another of We neither of us were alive for sixty nine or eighty six, but I'm I still talk like I was. Yeah, that's that's definitely <laughs> for sure. Uh, we're we're gonna end it on that note. Thanks to everyone listening to us. We just found out that there's. A whole lot more people listening to us than I thought. So that yeah. was really cool. Um, but Grace, anything uh, you want to say before we, we part? Thanks to everyone who's listening. Because there's apparently a lot of you out there. And um, I this week, I, I do want to mention this. This week I'm going to uh, I'm going to a couple Mets games. But I'm going Friday night, which is Lou Gehrig's day. Um, my grandfather died of Lou Gehrig's disease. So that's very important to me. So I'd like to just, I'm going to tweet some stuff out about it. Maybe, um, you know, uh, we'll talk about it next week as well. Uh, hopefully my, my one thing would be donate to ALS.org. Um, because this disease is terrible. He died before I was born. Um, but I know my, my mom lived through having to help him with that disease. And, and I think it's great that the league is doing this day league-wide. I think it's great that the Mets are finally home for it because the last couple of years they haven't been. Um, so yeah, just uh, donate to ALS.org. And um, if you're interested in learning about Lou Gehrig himself, a very interesting person, I recommend uh, The Luckiest Man biography by Jonathan Eig, I believe his, pronoun- his last name is pronounced, E-I-G. Fantastic book. That's a, that's a really good shot. I think we should spend a lot of time next week on on that experience. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's all we got. So uh, <laughs> thanks for joining and we'll see you all next week.